None of the stuffed animals I have out in the world right now make noises. I like how you say out in the world. Like you've got a small prison of them that will never see the light of day stuffed in the back of a closet. Oh my god, your face! You're like, those are the stuffed animals we don't talk about. Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana. Hey guys, you're listening to the bi-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. Today we're going to learn about an Australian Aboriginal abstract artist, and we're going to also learn about the woman who brought us chimpanzees. Didn't you cover someone that covered primates? Was it chimpanzees? It was, was it mon- monkeys? It was not chimpanzees. I covered Diane Fossey, and she studied gorillas. Ah, yes. That was our one-to-date murdery episode. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I love her. (laughs) She didn't do the murdering. (laughs) It's not often that historical feminist podcasts intersects with murder podcasting but that episode diane fossey check it out yeah it was pretty great that was one of our early ones right it was it was i don't know offhand which one but okay today is today murdery as well are we doing a two for two for primates no today is not murdery also i just want to go ahead and put out that distinction apes are not monkeys they are primates well, that's, that's um, what I said, primates. Okay, I just want to make primates. sure that you're not, like, also thinking, like, you know, these these apes are far more intelligent. Not to say that monkeys aren't, but you'll see. Okay, what? when you were a kid, did you ever have one of those spider monkey stuffed animals where the long arms and legs were really long and they had Velcro straps? I I had one that made noise. It was annoying. Oh, Wow. No, it was. was. It did. It did have the really long arms. The, the and then, uh huh, uh huh. It like slingshot across the room with the arms because you can slingshot it, and then it would make the noise. Mine did not do that. No. I just asked because there was a hot second in elementary school where if you were a cool kid, you had that stuffed animal. Yeah, you totally had it. Yep, I mm-hmm. had it. What? Mine didn't slingshot nor make sounds, so obviously one of us was cooler than the other. <laughs> <sighs> it's almost like you can tell the wealth difference between our families based off of our individual <laughs> monkey toys. <laughs> I feel personally attacked right now, Milana. <laughs> you asked me about the monkey toys. I know, and you're like, here, let me tell you about my middle, slightly upper middle class upraising. I, Ugh. you... I thought you had the same monkey. I had a normal monkey. (laughs) I didn't have a, uh, you know, tension-activated, (laughs) sound-enabled monkey. It was, if it makes you feel any any better, it was really annoying. All right. Well, monkey business aside. (coughs) Hey, hey, I'm entitled to one pun every episode this is my new policy oh. i had a good one last episode this is... 
<laughs> my one behind this episode. I fucking love you. <laughs> All right. Well, on my end today, we are not getting murdery, which is pretty solid. Yay. Always good. Now, just in the general terms of things, holy fucking moly, like the U.S., we are not doing great right now, like, at all. Oh, man. I just got into a really nasty fight yesterday with my uncle again. Milana's been Facebook debating, and debating is a generous word with Trump supporter family members. It's just, it's not going to end well. It's not going to end well. It, It didn't. Um, well, yeah, so in the United States, we're a little bit of a fucking dumpster fire. I mm. think that's that's the true spirit of 2020 this year, at least specific to America. Oh, man. All right, so picking up on last episode, uh, where in the fuck are the United States? We're going abroad for this episode as well. Yay! So last episode, we kind of bounced between... Iran and United States, and today we are taking our butts all the way to Australia. Woo woo! Uh, over the ocean. Go to Australia for the first time with our painter Emily Kame Kangawari, a Aboriginal Australian abstract painter who was pretty awesome in that she came to international prominence in her eighties. Ooh! For those who want to follow along, how do you spell her last name? It is K-N-G-W-A-R-R-E-Y-E. Although I would be super impressed if anyone was Googling, Googling as soon as I said their name. Just in case. Just in I know. Case. Hey, I mean, no, I like that sentiment. I do. I like <laughs> how you're anticipating our audience's needs. So with her being Aboriginal, there is a costume in Australia, which I, th- I thought was really neat in that if you're at an event being held within a traditional community or on their territory, there is either a welcome to or acknowledgement of country before an event. That's so nice. Yeah, basically it's just recognizing the Native people that have only been there for, you know, like hundreds of thousands of years (laughs) and their ties to the land and like a respectful acknowledgement of that. So... I'm going to do one today. It's an acknowledgement of country, so that's for us whiteies to say. So, I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land and waters of Australia and pay respects to all elders, past, present, and emerging for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. That's so beautiful. We should do more of that. Yeah, I think our country would be a lot better off if we really, truly acknowledged just the bloodshed, both of Native Americans and slave blood. Like... Can you imagine? It might be a little sobering if at the start of a wedding to be like, okay, guys, just a moment. All right. Um, Today, we'd like to acknowledge that we are on a plantation in which (laughs) hundreds, most likely thousands of slaves were brought over from Africa and died working this land to the profit of the slave owner, the human that owned other humans that built this lovely plantation upon which we are celebrating the wedding of Michaela and Mike. <laughs> oh, yeah. Golf clap. Golf clap. Here. Okay. Lovely. All right. Page two. Now, the Native Americans that initially owned this land... <laughs> We have got some heavy fucking baggage. Oh, my God. 
Oh, people would die before they did they that. They would die. They would straight they would up die. off themselves. Because <laughs> we just have such a hard time having these honest discussions uh, within this country. And I think that's part of why we're such a hot goddamn mess today. But you know what? Whatever. Moving on. Yeah, so we're getting out of the United States today. Going to Australia where they have that really, I think, beautiful kind of tradition. So with that said, we are going to Central Australia, so the Northern Territory, which it's as big as, okay, it's not as big as Alaska, but it's almost as big as Alaska. I forgot how big Australia was. And this is one territory, one, one state, essentially, within the country. That's insane. So yeah, we're almost as big as Alaska, but like, think of a super extreme Texas climate. Gross. I mean, we've got everything from desert land up to, um, that's from, like, the center region of Australia to up straight north, it's coastal. So we get a little bit marsh and throw in alligators and other animals that want to eat you so and kill you. many tarantulas. And snakies. All the venomous snakes. Australia's got all of them. I can handle the snakes. This region, for hundreds of thousands of years, Aboriginal Australian people have lived there. And, okay, so wording-wise... I think I'm going to switch between terminology Aboriginal and Indigenous, but it also First Nations, First Peoples. There's a terminology seems to be a little bit fluid in terms of, you know, who prefers what your your face is just completely blank right now. <laughs> I'm listening, I saw you. Yeah, like you're just judging so hard. Like, yes, white girls stumble over your terminology. <laughs> you so much <laughs> oh my goodness there was no judgment i was just listening but okay just the camera angle is slightly lower so it's an up angle she's yeah. just looking down her nose like, like yes racially fumble <laughs> oh look a double chin going don't, don't oh, it. all right yeah so the wording has kind of changed a little bit over the years but yeah so for like hundreds of thousands of years aboriginal people have lived there and Spoiler alert, white man came in, fucked it up, you know, enter the British, cue colonization, and think go downhill yep. from there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Been there, done that. And our artist today, Emily, she is impacted by that history. So she was born in roughly 1910. Okay. At this point, the Australian government isn't even bothering to keep records on Aboriginal people at all. Oh, good. Similar to how here in the United States during that time, like Native Americans still, they weren't American. That didn't happen until the early 1920s. These people don't exist. Let's just take this land. And documentation on Emily's life is different from other artists I've covered. So Emily, she makes it big. And usually that means there's a good bit of biographical information, like about someone, but not in this case. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of weird because... Instead, Emily's biographical details are in reference to her involvement in the art world. It's like a weird resume. Uh, it's just like usually if someone makes it big, then there's questions of like, okay, well, you know, what was your, what was growing up like? What was your early life like? What about your family life? I didn't really get like much of that at all. Just a little strange. So she was born kind of in the dead center of Australia in the southern region of the Northern Territory. Okay. And her early years, they were pretty chill. 
and chill in that, you know, her clan wasn't disrupted by the presence of outsiders. And being raised in her community, she learned, you know, traditions that had been passed down for thousands of years. Wait, how old is she? I mean, at this point, she's like a little kid. She's like 9, 10 or so. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, but she's just being raised in a community that has an intensely rich history. Okay. Going back for, you know, decades and centuries. So things are going okay. She's a little kid. You know, she's doing her thing. And uh, then when she's roughly 10 years old, her community lands are annexed for cattle raising. What? Yeah, so basically in the 1910s and 20s, you've got white farmers coming in, scooping up leases for land, and kicking out the indigenous people. I don't understand. You could just, oh, I don't know, make a deal with people with other, like, with tribes who are already cattle raising and give them money for their goods. It was <laughs> technically, there was a shift in governmental ownership of that territory at, in about 1910. And so that opened up the ability for white Australians to officially have government leases on this property Without the involvement of any of the people living there. That is absolute shit. Like, the government just completely superseded them. That is absolute shit. Yeah, like, they moved in. They brought their cattle in with them. And so now, all of a sudden, they're like, hey, you guys can't live here anymore. But, like, oh, hey, we also kind of need help raising our cattle and other animals. So not only do they kick the people off their land... But then they're like, hey, we can employ you, but, like, we're not actually going to pay you. We're just going to use you as really cheap labor, and we'll give you rations. That was the system. Oh. Oh, okay. That sounds great. I can't wait to do that. That's what happened to Emily and her family. Ah. Okay. Tell me they rioted hard. Not. Like Portland. Yeah, no, not not exactly. And it's really messed up because it follows a that's so similar to what happened here in the United States with Native Americans and our western expansion. Yeah. This is this is no bueno. This is It's it's the same playbook. I thought we were the only assholes, but apparently not. <sighs> yeah, so we're not in the United States today, but it kind of it feels like it with a lot of the really messed up racial policies. In the early 20th century. Yes. So, yeah, treatment to Australian indigenous people is, is pretty similar to, you know, what was going on here with the Native Americans. Uh, you know, like you said, like land was taken, forced onto reservations, treated as second-rate citizens, and it gets a little shittier here. But then we, then from there, it's good. We're on the up and up after this segment. Oh, so I wanted it to be happy, Megan. I will do a feel-good episode next time. I, pro- I pinky promise. I pinky promise. Fine. So, just like we've covered before, there is an effort here in the States and Australia alike to westernize Native peoples. That meant taking their children away from families. What? I mean, we did that here. I just... And that's what they did there. Uh, And you know what? We still do that here. We targeted a different kind of brown people, apparently. So, yeah, indigenous children were forcibly taken from their families and rehomed and reschooled, but this time in the Western way. Mm. 
all in an effort to strip them of their heritage. Mm. Yeah. So what resulted is known as the stolen generation. Oh my god. Because they legit were stolen from their homes. What? Like the parents didn't come or I don't know. They were just in a place because they were already second class citizens that they just were they in a place even... to not be able to fight back yeah. successfully because it was such a systemic issue. Oh my god. So this went on from 1910 to 1970 and like kids were straight up told that their parents were dead and that's why they were put into foster care. What? And, oh, hey, by the way, you can't speak your language. You have to learn English. And just forget about everything you've ever known because we're going to civilize you now. I, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Can we roll back to, they told them that their parents were dead. They straight up lied to them. Yeah. Because they, they really legitimately want to sever those ties between the children and their family and their heritage and their cultural and, like, their identity. That is insane. Imagine going, like, decades thinking your mom is dead and then running into her one day. They were they were taken far away. So it's not even like they were moving within the same communities at all. It was really a, a complete systematic approach to separate these children from their families. Jesus Christ. Okay. Yeah, in, a, in an effort to whitewash things. So. Good. Yay, that's... fun. And I just, I mention all this because that's what's going on. While Emily is coming of age, and that could have happened to her. It didn't, oh. but it could have. Oh, okay. At least that yeah. didn't happen. And I, I think part of it was just that she was living in such a rural area that it, they just didn't have the same governmental presence to make that a thing. Yeah. Okay. So she at least got to keep her family. It's like it's messed up because, I mean, she's dealing with that lives of, you know, suddenly they're working under these ranchers um, there's these government policies to whitewash everything, but yet, you know, she's trying to stay immersed and really learn her own, like, cultural traditions. But then collectively, people are like, eh, yeah, no, we don't want that to be a thing. But being told no by an entire society. Where have yeah. I heard that before? I know. But it it is cool because Emily became really deeply ingrained in these really traditional ceremonies within her community and one of them is specific to what's considered like women's business you know all the rituals and kind of spiritual ceremonies that they hold um the term for that is a wale that's just about kind of reinforcing like the connection to the land because that's really important and kind of passing on these narratives and these like stories of the spirits and the sacred sites in the area and like, they're like storytellers. There's not um, a passing of written records within this community and within a lot of um, traditional Aboriginal Australian communities. So it's through these ceremonies that you learn your history. Oh, that's crazy. And, like, part of it, there's um, storytelling done in the sand. Oh. So there's, like, sand art, sand drawing, and then also body painting. Okay. That's really, that's the element of it as well. So, like, as Emily is, like, growing up, at this point, she's not publicly showing art, but she's privately engaged in these practices, these creative performances. Right. Wait, performances? I thought they were just, like, sand art. Well, that's one element of the storytelling for these ceremonies. 
Okay. So there would be like singing and dancing. Oh. Um, it was a very physical um, kind of ritual storytelling. Like a whole show. Okay. So it's very loaded and everything has really deep spiritual meetings within those ceremonies. So this is where things are weird. So we left off in the 1920s where we had ranchers come in and kick them off their land and then essentially have them as slave labor. And then the second date that we have for Emily is in 1970. Like we're fast forwarding 60 years. What? She's in her 70s now? 80s now? Yeah, her like late 60s, early 70s. What? And that's why I'm saying it's weird, because usually there would be something about that period. Like, I mean, she most likely had a family, but, like, I I can't confirm or deny. I don't know. Nobody knows. I just was not able to find any kind of personal biographical information in regards to that, which I've been able to do with everyone else we've covered. Oh, my God. Like, you're, you'll learn, like, later on, like, she made it big in the art world. There's like no documentary or anything that's nothing that I was able to come across as an armchair American researcher. That's a crime. Maybe there's some book in a Australian public library somewhere that would answer all my questions that I just have not come across. So I do acknowledge that that could just be a blind sight. But when she comes on the records in the 1970, that's because there was a lawsuit against the government. And her and a group of women from her community were essentially like, hey, the land that you guys took all those years ago, we want it back. Oh, okay. Well, at least it opens on to like, like if this were a scene on a play, it opens up to something juicy. Yeah. I mean, cute, like the (laughs) land's right movement. (laughs) Where Aboriginal Australians were like, hey, you guys took what was fucking ours. Maybe you should give it back. That's insane. Okay, sure. What? So there was a government case, and at this point in the 70s, there was a shift in the government coalition in power. So things were more liberal. And the government, they heard the case, and they were like, yeah, you're right. You guys can have the land back. (laughs) Uh, oh man all i can imagine is like them like coming in full force picket fencing screaming we want our land and then like a bunch of white people going yeah we're sorry please take back i mean i'm not i'm not sure exactly how it went down but i do know that that awile that i described the those ceremonies that was used in the court case to prove the documentation that they were the rightful owners of the land oh my gosh wait so she had to she had to perform in front of the the judges they performed a ceremony and they had an outsider i don't recall the scientist's name she was essentially an anthropologist she had been working with the community for a few years at that point so she had been welcomed in And she was given permission to videotape certain points of the ceremony to be used in the court case. That's amazing. Yeah. That's so cool. If, like, my performances were used to, like, win a civil lawsuit, I'd be all about that. It was pretty cool because, I mean, yeah, compared to what they originally lost in the 1920s, like, it's no replacement. But almost half a million acres isn't a bad start. That's a lot of land. Do they also get money, too, for their, like, losses? I don't know if there was essentially, like, retributions paid. Okay. 
in addition to the land ownership being given back to them. Right. But I do know that they, within that plot of land, they named it Utopia. And uh, within it, because, I mean, again, it's half, almost half a million acres. There were multiple kind of communities that settled within it. Okay. Yeah. So, like I mentioned with that government switch up towards the more liberal one in the 1970s, there was a lot more community outreach programs geared towards Aboriginal people's communities, like Emily's. Okay. So, I mean, of course, before we had had something similar, but it was essentially like a white savior complex where people wanted to go in and be like, see, we can civilize them. Mm. And that was not the case with these efforts. Mm. Basically, it was a, a small group of women came in. They had some federal grant money and... They went into the community and were like, hey, like, we've got some new materials and techniques for creative work we can show you guys. And if you're interested, we can help you sell that artwork to bring money into your community. So it was all about oh, that's cool. facilitating the community's own creativity and being able to create a more... Um, and their economy. Uh, yeah, just to give them another revenue flow into it. That's cool. It's a very rural area. Yeah, that's really cool. Giving them, like... They really came in. Those avenues. Yeah, they really were like, we just want to be facilitators. Like, what can we help facilitate? Right, right. Which is a totally different attitude, and it worked really well. Can we do more of that in our own country, please? I know, I know, right? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So, what they initially came in with was uh, a type of fabric dyeing method that the Indonesians have really perfected. It's called batik, and that's where you take fabric and you have a special pen with heated up wax in it, and you can draw a wax-resist design, and then you, like, layer the dye. So it blocks the dye? It does, and so you use that to create designs on fabric. It is really crazy because, like, for people who are really skilled in it, you can look at a piece of fabric and you're like, oh, that was, like, printed. Like, that's a print. Like, straight out, oh, like a printer kind of situation? No, like, um, like a pattern printed on silk or cotton. Oh, yeah. What? Really? And that was all hand done, but it looked... Yeah, and so people who are really good, you can get a pattern that repeats and get multiple color applications to the point where it doesn't even look like it's handmade anymore. What? It's really cool. And there's a women's group within Emily's community, they really dived into the technique. And there was even a point where they went to Indonesia to work with other artisans to learn more about the technique and the materials. That's so cool. I wish I could just jump over to Indonesia. I mean, at this point, anywhere outside the United States is looking pretty good. So, you know, once this whole pandemic clears up. Oh, man. Indonesia's a beautiful country. I don't, I don't know that much about the country. We should steal a yacht. A big one. And just sail. I like where our minds are going because you're like, okay, how can I commit a grand felony to go into international waters? (laughs) And I'm thinking, okay, cool. I should look into the country and find an artist to cover that I don't know about. And that way I can learn about the country. I mean, I'm not saying one of those is a little bit more feasible than no, the other. We can just get like, on the boat and go where to are we gonna get a yacht? We'll find a yacht. Don't worry, I got you covered. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got that type of fabric working that's really popular. 
And painting also creeps into the community, too. And Emily picks up painting. Okay. And for her, she said she, like, stopped using Baltic because, quote, I gave it up because it was too much hard work. I changed over to canvas then. It was easier. Okay. Yeah. I mean, whatever medium works for you, right? Yeah. And Baltic is kind of fussy. I mean, you have to, like, heat up this wax. You've got to keep it hot, but you don't want to burn it because then you ruin it. And then to draw on it, Mm. if you get any unwanted drops or drips on your piece like that's you can't undo that you have to restart with painting you could just paint over it and call it a day or just wipe the paint off so she just found something that worked better for her and what was really cool is that so those women those facilitators who came in they were also interested in showing the artwork from utopia from this women's group Mm -hmm. and the recognition and the interest in the work was like a domino's effect. So Emily and the other women, they're collectively making as a community and their work is collectively shown as a community. And that starts in 1980. So there's a local art show and then there's a regional art show and then there's one in the capital of Australia and then there's an international touring art show. It's all in less. All in less than 10 years. Um, how? It was just a matter of their work would be shown in a gallery and then someone else would be like, hey, this would be really good at fill in the blank. And so it just, it snowballed, which is great. It's really just about the people you know. Yeah, that is definitely one thing I have learned from doing all these episodes and research for the podcast. Got a networking little butt off. And as I understand it, For one of those later shows, the more national, international ones, Emily's work was chosen for the material artwork, like as the cover art, essentially. Ooh. Yeah, because at that point, she was the oldest artist among them, and it was a sign of respect. And suddenly, everyone's interested in Emily's artwork. That's exciting. Yeah. So it's, at this point, it's 1989, Emily's almost 80, and she has her acrylic on canvas paintings displayed at Sydney. Mm -hmm. And then Emily lands an artisan residency program. And then a year later, she has her first solo show. That's insane. Yeah. And then not long after that, she's awarded the prestigious Australian Artist Creative Fellowship. And then even has her work representing Australia in the 1997 Coolest Kid Art Fair Ever, the Venice Biennial. That's the one that um, Monir went into last episode, right? Yeah, our last artist participated in the 70s, because that's a show that's been going on since the early 1900s. So this is all really impressive, considering Emily's only eight, she's only spent eight years painting. That's, wow. And what? she is averaging a painting a day. And by the time she passed away, like, she had painted over 3,000 works. That, wow. She's, like, really and cranking that out. She super was. And, like, they're not small paintings. Like, the canvases are usually a few feet in dimension one way or the other. And what was cool is that there was a network in place to facilitate it. I mean, like, yeah, we'll get you as many canvases as you need, as much paint as you need to make it happen. So she didn't have to get any of that inventory. It would just show up and she would go. I technically can't speak to process of it. But there, there was a system in place to, like, it, like facilitate what she needs. And there's the resources and the money behind it. That's crazy. Yeah. 
and that that system was put in place by the the rest of the women in the art i guess network that she had originally went through there's a handful of women that came in in the early 70s mm-hmm. on federal grants to help uh, just foster creativity within the community. Oh, okay. So that one, not the not the actual group of women who are artists themselves, but the actual group that facilitated it from earlier. Yeah, okay. there's uh, those outside women yeah, who yeah, yeah. were the ones uh, fostering these this networking and connection and putting on the gallery shows. I thought that the fostering of those connections had ended like after like three years, not lasting into the eighties. No, no, they're they're yeah, they're continuing. That's crazy. Okay. It's a very, very rural area where right. they're from. Right. And so I imagine even just getting work to the capital, that might easily be a 20-hour-plus drive. Oh, okay. Like, that's how far away these things are. Oh, okay. Now it's all starting to make sense. Okay. Like, you can't just Amazon what you need there because, I mean, again, these are very, very remote, like, settlements. So did she never leave her settlement to see her pieces in these galleries? No, so she did. So like I said, like they went and they did a tour of Indonesia for their their fabric working. And then later on for later on for her solo show in Sydney, she was there as well. Okay. And when she received that fancy award that I mentioned, that fellowship, she was there in person for it. Oh, and this is all okay. taking place more on the western coast of Australia. Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah. So even though it's the 80s and then later on the early 90s, like, she is traveling outside of her home to be involved within these uh, events. Yay. Good, good. The paintings that she's doing, I, I really like them. They're, they're really awesome. So she worked in abstraction, and some of her line work paintings, when I first saw them, they just made me think of how I would, you know, sometimes you try to fall asleep and your thoughts just keep running around your head. Like, I'm, I'm going I'm to Google now. That's just the type of energy that, like, I interpreted from her work. So there's there's a lot of movement to it. Let me look at this. Emily uses really, like, bold line and dot work in her artwork. And in terms of color, the work shifts from vibrant to monochrome. And, like, in her use of mu- movement, like, she's pulling from the creative work that she's always done within those awele ceremonies. Mm-hmm. So, like, the, the dancing part of it, the sand art, the body painting that you know she had been doing for this point for decades and core to those ceremonies is a concept of dream time or dreamings and that's a really core principle with an aboriginal kind of creation theory of just the idea of how everything in the cosmos kind of came to be and the significance and the continued connection that we have with that spiritual origin oh these are fun I can see what you're talking about, the movement and everything. Yeah, and what's neat about Emily's work is that for people who aren't aware of just the spiritual uh, context and inspiration, you can look at the work as an abstraction and be like, oh, this is really good. And then if you learn a little bit more of what was inspiring it, you're like, oh, cool, that's even better. Like, Yeah, okay. You can enjoy it on these different levels. Like, It's really approachable. I know that you and I are not like the biggest fans of abstract art. But I think this is actually, like, her work is so well done and so, what's the there? It's strong. It's beautiful. Like, your eyes don't stop moving. It just kind of, like, scans across the entire space. And, like, her color works really well. Like, this is, this is a piece that's well thought out. 
I attribute it to the fact that she has these really concrete things that she's referencing. Mm-hmm. Her middle name, Kame, means yam. And so growing up, she learned to look for wild yams and potatoes based off of the um, surface of the ground because then you could tell what root structures were underneath. And like, so she paints about those root structures in some of her line work art. I think you and I like like her abstract work because Uh we can tell there's some type of logic behind it and it's not just arbitrary. And I... To me, I hate arbitrary art. Yeah. And I feel like with abstraction, it's really easy to get away with that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because you can just slap anything on, and then if you have a, you know, fancy enough artist statement, you can justify anything. And I can say that because I'm an artist. No, I mean, like, I'll, I'll say it, too. I'm not an artist. Stop being lazy. <laughs> <laughs> I just, abstract art is easy to, to get away with that in. And I think with Emily's work you can feel a connection to something even though if you're not quite sure what it is something that's creatively driving her work and so it's all these rituals and kind of um techniques she learned growing up that has eventually fed into her visual arts for sure very yeah it's pretty solid and not surprising because as a senior member of her community like she was considered a custodian to dreaming sites so these really significant spiritual sites Mm. and like that fed into her artwork so I'm proud to say that Emily received not only recognition within her lifetime, but she also made a good bit of money from it as well. And it was cool because she distributed that amongst her community. Oh, oh, that's so cool. I mean, but it, it did kind of put the pressure on. So, for instance, in 1992, when Emily was awarded the Artist Creative Fellowship, she saw that as a way to retire. You know, it was recognition of the contributions that she's made. And then also it was a pretty large monetary sum that she was granted. But within her community, even though she was being represented and acknowledged as an individual, it was still a community effort to foster that. And so there was the expectation for her to feed back into that community um, network and support. Oh, okay. All right. That's got to be a lot to have on your shoulders. And again, like, she's in her 80s at this point. Yeah, like, let a girl rest. Just a little bit. Yeah, so she kept cranking at work, and by the time she passed away in 1996, like like I mentioned, she had over 3,000 paintings to her name. That's insane. Yeah, and she was in her late 80s. Now, just, like, real quick, like we've touched on, Australia's got their racial baggage, just like we do here in the United States, too. And... Like, as of 2018, Indigenous people, they only make up 2% of the Australian population, but over 25% of people incarcerated. Mm. Yeah, yeah. 2% of the population incarcerated over 25% of the time. That's... Something seems a little skewed. Yeah. So, specific to Emily, like, I I wonder how much racial bias might have contributed to the lack of biographical information about her. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like I said, I'm an armchair researcher. I'm... And for all I know, she just could have been immensely private about that, which is fair, but I just... No, I'm sure it took a, took a hand in it. I don't know. But what we do know is that, like, she made really solid art. She received a lot of international recognition from it. She, even better, she made money off of it to support her community. Yay! So while there's a lot of, like, what ifs, like, did she get married? Did she have children? You know, what was her family like? What was it like growing up? I I don't know. Well, what was her favorite animal? 
Yeah. Like, what did she think of the art attention she was receiving? Like, I don't know. But she's a pretty solid artist. She's a really solid painter. So, yeah. So, while there's still some gaps in her information, that is Emily Kame Kangwarai. Yeah, we're away from the United States, but yeah, we still got some racial baggage. So I'll find something fuzzy and feel good for next episode. I pinky promise. Okay. Yeah, but I think today you've got something feel good. And like you said, it's not murdery at all, so that's fun. Not murdery at all. The woman I am covering today, everybody really knows her name. And I know that I'm usually very adamant about not talking about a woman who is so well-known. I really think that we need to take a minute and feel good about something in the world, and she is one of those people. She is one of those beacons of hope in the world. So I do know a bunch about her. I watched two documentaries. I do know her favorite animal. Awesome. I like it. I love it when we get to like watch documentaries and movies for our research. It's great. Yeah, when I don't have to, like, bang my head against the wall trying to figure out quantum physics. It's great. You just gave me chills. You're like, (laughs) be gone, devil. We don't speak of you in this house. (laughs) So, last season, I think we we touched on this earlier, I covered a woman named Diane Fossey. She was one of the three women employed by two paleoanthropologists named Louis and Mary Leakey. They were married. Um, like partners Mm -hmm. they had a fascination for apes and the women they employed were eventually known as the trimates so diane fossey studied gorillas the one i did last time that's the murdery episode Mm -hmm. but today we're going to talk about the woman who studied chimpanzees which are actually not her favorite animal what okay that's gotta be (laughs) kind of annoying can you be like yeah, I'm a specialist on chimpanzees, but I just... <laughs> Do you want to hear about gorillas? Because I think gorillas are, like, way cooler. <laughs> I mean, she she has a passion for chimpanzees. Don't get me wrong. But dogs have her be <laughs> just by, like, a smidge. Oh, I love it. I mean, who doesn't love little puffers? Little snooty boots. It's very funny because she's very she's very English. She's very British. Her name is Jane Goodall. I haven't said her name yet. We've all heard of her. We know about her, but we're gonna we're gonna delve deeper. Yeah, actually, now that you mentioned, I know of her. I d- I don't know anything about her actually. Exactly. Yeah, like I I could say she worked with primates, and I couldn't even tell you what type of primate she worked with. What kind? Yeah, yeah. I got you covered. Don't worry. I got a whole dealy. (laughs) But there's a a whole, there's a moment in one of the documentaries when they're watching her, like, she's, like, older at this point, and she's walking her, it's not a greyhound, it's, like, a whippet, or an Italian greyhound. Yeah. I like my dog, Scruffy. No, no, it was a whippet, because the whippet's a medium-sized uh, and it's it's really funny because she was trying to she was like walking around and they were following her with like B roll and she looked at the dog and she was like, look, this is where me and my uh, my dog growing up would play. And she tried to get him near the forest. And this whippet, this little stick of a creature was like, I'm good. I don't want to move. And then she like in the most British way possible was like, you're not a dog. But, like, Jane Goodall is the kind of woman who would, like, dress up her dog. And there's definitely a picture of her, like, really young, dress- who dressed up her dog when she was, like, eight. And this dog was, like, a lab mix pit thing, so it was just enjoying its life. It had sunglasses on its face, and it was like, oh, this is the life. 
Were they wearing matching <laughs> outfits? Because that's what I like to imagine. Oh, no, unfortunately not. Oh, they were not wearing lame. matching outfits. But they were, it was cute. Her name is, well, she was born Valerie Jane Morris Goodall. She was born April 3rd, 1934 in London, England. She, as a young girl, was very shy, spent a lot of time to herself, led a lot of time with her dog, and she would spend her childhood running around her home's garden, climbing trees, just exploring the world around her. She loved animals always, and the weird ones, too. So she had, <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm telling you, she's she was like the, the little shy kid in the corner they were all a little worried about. You know what? <laughs> we covered Beatrix Potter, and she was the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, same like, thing. There's something about the world that just, like, she would much rather be alone than with people. And with their and animals. Just, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she was actually given a stuffed chimpanzee doll by her dad. Uh, they named it Jubilee, and she still has it in her home in London. I would like to think that it followed her around Africa. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would like to. But everyone thought that it would scare the crap out of her when she was a kid. Like, her mom's friends were like, um, she is going to hate that thing. Like, it's going to make her cry. And she ended up loving it, and it sparked her love for chimpanzees. She also really loves her stuffed animals. I'm just going to throw that out there. I know. No, that's cool. I'm just, I'm imagining, like... No, what it might look like, you know, like, you know, like those haunted dolls where you're like, that is going to scare a kid. Like, oh, was it like I the saw, chan- chimpanzees saw... version of that? Yeah, it it looked a little rabid. I'm not going <laughs> to. <laughs> oh, you know, it would have been even yeah. worse if the dad had gotten it from a friend who like had handmade it. Oh, no. I don't and he know. brings it home and the wife <laughs> and everyone else at her like during tea time, they're like. In very polite British <laughs> conversation, I'm like, what the fuck is that? That is terrifying. <laughs> Where did you get it? And he asked me, like, oh, I definitely didn't get it from Margaret down the street who just spent, like, three weeks making it. Like, oh, no. I picked it up oh, in a no. shop. Oh, no. That's probably exactly what happened. It's bad. Yeah, never mind. Uh, I have... Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have a feeling... She definitely had a stuffed, a few stuffed animals with her when she went to Africa. But yes. I have a feeling Jubilee was one of them. Awesome. Yeah. Which, you know, as a woman who, you have a certain stuffed animal that has also internationally traveled with you on multiple occasions. I feel like your gut instinct is Yeah, is she's true. been to every country and every continent I've ever been on. So, all of her childhood fantasies, wants, dreams, all of that surrounded themselves with her living amongst the animals in Africa. She actually, I didn't, she had a book, her very first book ever. It was a Christmas present. It was Dr. Doolittle. And there was a picture of, like, monkeys, like, chain-linking each other's arms across a bridge. And then Dr. Doolittle, like, walking over the monkeys, utilizing them as a bridge because they were helping him. And, like, that was the picture that inspired her. Okay, that's cool. And that's really neat. You can kind of, you have the reference information to know, like, to pin it down to that specific moment for her. I know. Those documentaries were great. I didn't get all of my stuff from the documentaries. I definitely did some my normal research, but, like, it was really good to, like, actually get those quotes and those feelings straight from her. Yeah, to flush it um, in. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty solid. I, like, I love it. So, 
She wanted to go to Africa so much so that she didn't let her not having the money to go to college stop her from going. She graduated high school, got a job as a waitress, and saved up money to travel to a Kenyan farm. I guess she knew a friend of a friend. I'm sorry, but, like, what line cook knows a friend of a friend that could, like, hook her up? Like, or, you know what? (laughs) Having done my share of time in food service, I bet there was just that one slightly creepy regular that would come in all the time and always sit in her section. Oh, no. And one time she mentioned <laughs> what she'd been saving up money for. And you're like, oh, let me let me ask around. And then before you know it, he's, like, hooked her up with a guy in Kenya. Oh, God. <laughs> and you're like, thanks, Steve. I thought you were a little creepy, but you always tipped well. And now I'm going to Kenya because of you. <laughs> that's... I won't think of you when I'm literally a continent away. <laughs> that's uh, that's canon, by the way. That's, that's what we're going with here. I hope so. Uh... <laughs> That's great. <laughs> okay. So while she was out there, uh, this was in 1956. She ended up at a Kenyan farm, Kenyan farm in 1956. And when she was out there, she was told to reach out to Louis Leakey. He was the paleoanthropologist that I told you about. Mm-hmm. She didn't expect anything to come of it, but it ended up with her basically getting a job as his secretary. Here's the deal, though. Louis Leakey and his business partner and wife, Mary, thought that established scientists would have a bias against truly understanding the ape societies. So everyone had such a preconceived notion about how they were and how they were so different than humans. And they got a gut feeling that they're like the, the Leakeys had a gut feeling that there were things about apes that we didn't really know because, I mean, obviously, nobody had gone out to actually observe them. So they were actively looking for people with a non-traditional scientific background to be able to study those animals in question. Yes. That's so they wild. They thought women were better because they had more of an animal touch. Uh, um, okay. All right. That's, I know, I know, I know. So when they picked the three women in question and sent them on their excursions, they made sure that they did not have those scientific biases. <laughs> I.e. formal scientific education. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I mean, in this case, it worked. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously. <laughs> it gets, it's, it's insane. This is what I have written. It's the next one. So when Lewis found an uneducated 20-something-year-old named Jane Goodall who just wanted to be left alone with the animals in Africa, he wasted, like, no time telling his wife about her. And they funded her excursion to Gombe in 1960. So, Gombe is in Tanzania, which is a country that is in the central eastern region of Africa, like slightly south of the equator and touching the Indian Ocean. However, Gombe is the westernmost part of Tanzania. So it's not touching the ocean, but it's like right on this massive river that separates Tanzania and its neighboring country to the west, the Dominican Republic of the Congo. And I included some geography in there for you because I had no freaking clue and I know some people still refer to Africa as a country, so I'm throwing in some actual <laughs> distinction. <laughs> Just throwing that in there. Oh, our public education system has really <laughs> failed us Americans. So she goes to study these chimps at Gombe Stream National Park. She has zero idea how she's going to do it, let alone how to find them. She's this young, confused 26-year-old who actually brought her mother along because she was forced to have a chaperone. What? The warden thought it was too dangerous out there for her to live by herself. 
Wait, so do they, like, have to fly in her mother after the fact? I, I guess so, yeah. Like, because I don't think she went home, or maybe she did go home, and then they, like, flew her out from the UK to Gombe. Because I guess she had to pack for this excursion, right? Yeah. Yeah, so she was like, who am I going to go with? And her mom was like, okay, we're doing this, but you've got to work your butt off. <laughs> I like how she's like, all right, mom, you can come. I'm not taking any of your shit. You got to haul the line. Wait, no, no. Her mom said that to her. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> like, because people, like, other people told her that she couldn't do anything. They kept telling her, like, why would you want to go to Africa? Like, you're a British woman. Like, why? Are, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, and her mom was like, you can do this thing, but um, you better work. And, like... Not only was mom chaperoned, but she was also, she also, like, brought medicine to the campsite, and she was, like, mom for everyone, and she would help take care of the fishermen and everybody on the site. Nice. Yeah. So she was, she was very, like, I'm everyone's mom, we're gonna cook, we're gonna take care of you, everything's gonna be great. <laughs> okay. This is a really terrible thought, do you, but do you think if Diane Fossey had brought her mom along, maybe she would not have been murdered? Can you imagine the people being like, oh, I fucking hate that bitch. She's terrible. She's moving in my territory on my research. Let's just like bump her off. I'd be like, no, have you had her mom scones? She is such a nice old woman. We can't do that to her. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, Diane Fossey was not. She had a more abrasive personality. Yeah. So she probably should have had a buffer. All right. So Jane Goodall's mom is there being yeah. everyone's mom. Yeah. And yeah. how is the research going for Jane? So Jane, she had like no plan, but she would go out with like a binocular and a pencil and a pad in the 1960s and just go into the woods by herself, which I think is completely negating the need for mom because mom didn't come with. <laughs> <laughs> but here we are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but she just wanted to be with the animals and she loved being alone. She didn't want anyone following her. She would walk through the forest, and initially she would find these chimpanzees. She named them. That was unheard of. Subjects were not named mm. ever in scientific things or in scientific studies. They were, yeah, they were numbered. So because Jane wasn't a scientist, she named them, and there were names like David Greybeard, Goliath, the alpha male, a cranky old man named Mr. McGregor, and the main female, Flo, with her infant daughter, Fifi. Oh, I like it. Um, originally, they would always run away. Day after day, they would just, like, see her and go. And she wasn't learning anything for months. Yeah. She was freaking out because she was running out of time to actually do the study. And she wasn't learning anything new. And they were trying to figure out what was going on. So, like, this was happening until, like, three months later when the chimpanzee she affectionately called David Graybeer saw her get closer and he didn't run. And she was like, oh! Breakthrough. So he kind of, like, led her towards the others and the others saw her get closer and just continued on with whatever they were doing. Mm -hmm. And what they were doing specifically was trying to find lunch. So... They were taking bamboo sticks, taking leaves off of them, and then shoving these sticks into termite holes, which doesn't sound like much, but at the time, a human observing this behavior in a species that wasn't human was a big freaking deal. Yeah. No, they're like, they're using tools. 
For sure, yeah. yeah. These chimpanzees were exhibiting behaviors of object modification and tool use, which was something that was thought to be a solely human thing because God gave them that ability to do so. Uh, we are so self-centered as humans. I know. It's really annoying. So she writes back to Leakey, reporting the behavior that she witnessed, and his response was, quote, We must now redefine man, redefine tool, or accept chimpanzees as human. He was he was basically saying that recognizing their intelligence the, and how we have to reconsider yeah. those pre- preconceived notions prior. He was more like, okay, now we have to figure out what a man is beyond tool usage. Yeah, but you know, here we go. Yeah, because you're right. Even she wasn't really credited because people were immediately doing just that, discrediting her. Like she's making things up. She doesn't even have a degree. She's a woman. People didn't want to think about any animal being anything remotely close to human because that opens the huge can of worms that is evolution and discrediting grand design creationism. Yeah. Simple as that. (laughs) So in 1962, two huge things happened for her. So Louis Leakey made Jane's acceptance to a PhD program in ethology, which is primate study, at the University of Cambridge a thing. I mean, out of all the schools you can get your PhD at. Not a bad one. Or not primate study, but, like, animal studies. Yeah. No, it's not a bad one at all. No, that's pretty banging, especially since she didn't have an undergrad degree. Or a master's. Or a master's. Those little things. Did you know you can get a PhD without getting a master's? Uh, Fun fact? No, but also within the fine arts world, there's really no PhD, so... That's true. I've never looked into it. And I just misspoke. Ethology is not... The study of primates, because that's primatology. Ethology is more like um, just animal behavior studies, like a certain sect of it. Okay. So her thesis specifically was about her first five years at Gombe. So she would write her thesis while she was working at the park. She would also learn that chimps aren't vegetarian. They do eat meat, and sometimes they eat the young of other primates. Holy moly, I did not know that one. Yep. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's terrible. Just imagine, like, oh, that's a sickly-looking Charlotte you got there. I'd hate to think what it would taste like with a little bit of salt and pepper on it. Like, Yep. Well, okay. That may or may, not, may, or may not come into play later. Well, a chimpanzee's cannibalization. Yes. Okay, all right. Well, I'm just... No, I'm... not... not. I mean, they, they, they can be cannibals, yes, but uh, other primates. Well, you'll see. You'll see. You'll see. Okay... All right. Uh, also observed was their aggressive tendencies when resources were low. Hmm. These were things that nobody knew. People assumed that they just ate bananas, and even Jane admitted she thought they were, quote, just like humans, but kinder. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's sweet. Incorrect. <laughs> the second huge thing that happened in 1962 was that Leakey secured more funding because of her groundbreaking findings and also secured a National Geographic photographer to document the behaviors of the chimpanzees to provide proof for those who wanted to discredit her. Ah, okay. Exactly. It's great. Like, she's getting all sorts of wings. The photographer's name was Hugo van Lauwek, and he was a Dutch nobleman. Later, she's, like, known as Dame as well. They worked together for about a year and a half. His assignment ended. He left. But then when he left, he sent her a telegram, and it asked her to marry him. 
Oh, that's sweet. Mm-hmm. They got married in 1964 in London. Nice. So he got another assignment in Gombe, and Jane had to go back to work, so they returned to find that Flo, the main female, had given birth to a son, which they named Flint. Mm-hmm. And this was big because this was the first opportunity anyone had to document the growth of a chimpanzee. So their milestones and growth development, things like that, nobody knew about. And she could do the study for up to 50 years because that's how long chimpanzees live. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I I didn't know that. (laughs) Maybe would have wagered like 30 years? Nope. Okay. 50 freaking years. It's crazy. Once again, she was observing these crazy, awesome creatures and learning things that she and the scientific community had no clue about. And she would later admit to actually learning some things about parenting from Flo (laughs) and actually applying them. It was also around this time that Jane would start bringing in PhD students from around the world to help with her research. She would do half of the observations and half of the administrative work. And then in 1967, she gave birth to her only child, Hugo Eric Lewis, who she and everybody else in the world would affectionately refer to her, or refer to as Grub. Oh, lovely. (laughs) (laughs) So this is, this is also around the time where like Flo's grandson was getting like momentum. So it was Fifi's son. Mm Mm-hmm like, second oldest, and he was becoming alpha male, and he, like, pushed, like, Jane out of the the family. I guess he was just like, I really don't like you. Like, all the other chimps were, like, fine. Yeah, so Flo's grandson was getting big for his britches and decided that he didn't want her as part of the family anymore, mm-hmm. so that was kind of sad. But Grub, specifically, this is where... Chimps may or may not eat other primates young, lived in a refurbished chimp cage for the first three years of his life because of the worry. Okay. All right. I mean, never mind the whole a dingo ate my baby. It'd be like, no, it was a chimpanzee <laughs> that tried to eat it my baby. It was a chimpanzee. They like painted it like blue and put mobiles and it was like his space and there was like a swing for him. Yeah. And, like, he, like was when she was working, but like, yeah, that was his play space. It was a chimpanzee. Uh, I mean, I would worry, too. Whatever you got to do, right? Yeah. Especially what other, (laughs) you know, I imagine predatory wildlife could be in that region. Oh, for sure. Yeah. He was was very protected, which is is great. He had a very lovely childhood, at least. Mm -hmm. So, dude spoke fluent Swahili to his 40-year-old Tanzanian best friend and lived back and forth between the Serengeti and Gombe until he was six. That was about when the time Jane and Hugo decided that he needed to get school and socialization in London when he was six years old and about to go to go to school because mm-hmm. he wasn't getting that socialization in. Yeah, I imagine among PhD students, it might be a little hard for him to really engage as a small child. <laughs> yeah, just like, oh, hi, guys. <laughs> I mean, I remember being like a six or seven year old hanging out with a bunch of radiologists. And look where it's gotten funny. you today. I know. (laughs) (laughs) She's got a small child to raise, a husband who had more assignments in the Serengeti Plains than in Gombe, and a research research facility and several students to run and oversee. The woman was stretched thin. Mm. Honestly, that's the theme of her life. She stretches herself a lot. Uh, She stepped back from the research center, went along with Hugo and Grub to the Serengeti. So this was before Grub was six. And would phone back to her students every day and write books in the Jeep while Hugo 
you know, shot what he needed to shoot. And then when Grubb went to London, she just couldn't stay away from the chimpanzees, and Hugo kept pressing her to come out with him full time. They had eventually started fighting and fell apart and divorced in 1974. Okay. So next year, she actually marries the director of the Tanzanian's National Parks, Derek Bryson. Okay. So she doesn't have to go anywhere now. <laughs> she's She's got her man in Tanzania. She's good. Everything's fine. She stayed in Gombe with the chimps. Uh, it was the life for her. Again, because she could be alone and hang out with these freaking apes all day mm-hmm. long and just enjoy her life. In 1977, she was able to start the Jane Goodall Institute, and it allowed her to re- it allowed her research to start becoming self-sufficient. She was so happy, living her dream, until about 1986. What happened then? She was invited to a conference hosted by the Chicago Academy of Sciences. She went, she was expected to speak, and to go home. At least that's what she wanted to do. But she was on a plane, and she saw her little green home that was going to be surrounded by desolate hills all around. And it was at that conference that she found that she needed to turn from observation and turn towards activism. Mm. So she started traveling and speaking at conferences around the world. And in 1991, the Jane Goodall Institute founded a worldwide program called Roots and Shoots. So it is a conservation and wildlife program targeted towards children. Because she's, you know, meeting with all these big, like, conference people and these big names. But she was like, you know, children are the future. So let's get this in now. Yeah, yeah. Make those those influences. So it would teach them about the planet, the animals, and what we as humans can do to minimize our nasty footprints and maximize the regrowth of the planet as a whole. Mm -hmm. It even has kind of, like, a specific, like, dedication towards women in general, like, girls in general, as, like, a leadership role for them to like make them feel comfortable in those roles and move them forward so i think there are about 150,000 groups worldwide at this point and her oldest grandson merlin actually oversees the pugu hills nature education center that is umbrellaed under the jgi so the jane goodall institute and roots and shoots so he is like continuing his grandmother's work oh so so she's got like all these satellite groups outside of the main area mm-hmm. yeah they're they are worldwide no no that's, that's great <laughs> it took a few decades but yeah in every country and there's actually like a main like i don't know if i call it a conference but each like country would send their main roots and shoots like kid to the uk for like a meeting of the minds and then bring what they've learned from that back to their homes it's so great to be, like, really encouraging those young students. Oh, and then yeah. to, like, actually honestly consider what they have to say and their contributions. Because so often, and I imagine specific to science, that how often is an 11-year-old seriously going to be considered? For sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, these these individuals were more like 16 or 17, depending on, like, where okay. they were going. A little older than Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But they start young. Mm-hmm. Like, they start in the program young, and then they, if they continue, they are, like, probably going to be sent out. That's so neat. It's amazing that kind of, like, footprint she has. And it's this footprint is enormous. Like, she's, if I believed in God and angels, I would consider her an angel. Like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. She's, she's perfection. 
So the next year, after she started Roots and Shoots, she did something super crazy. She went with another National Geographic photographer to the Brazzaville Zoo in the Republic of Congo Mm -hmm. because someone had told her that the conditions that the zoo was in were horrific. Mm. She met this old chimp named uh, Gregoire, and uh, he was like skin and bones and hairless and... She was obviously upset, but, you know, she's British, so she didn't really get to, like, she didn't really show it, but she was like, uh, um, no. Just yeah. no. <laughs> she wanted to take these chimps away. She wanted to get them a better space. And she partnered with an oil company, Konoko, to create a sanctuary, a sanctuary called Chipangua Chimpanzee Rehabilitation Center. Okay. So, obviously, animal rights people were outraged. <laughs> Because her thought on the matter was that people fuel their cars with gas, and although she disagrees with oil companies in general and what they're doing to what they're doing to the ecosystem and to the environment, like she doesn't love it. But in general, if one came to her to ask her how to better their footprint and give back to the environment, she wasn't going to ignore them or condemn them. Sure, she would love them to just switch it to a greener energy jobs, but this was a way to be better and she wasn't going to deny these people of a way to do it when they asked her for her guidance. Yeah, there's um one of the most significant international annual art shows is the BP Portrait Awards. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, there's talk of that, of just being associated with the BP company. Yeah. Yeah, the gasoline oh, yeah. company and all their energy productions. And is that something we want to be associated with? Is that something we want to have a sponsorship? In this being one of the most prestigious international art awards you know are we just furthering and condoning the behavior of this company so it's it's tough she made a very unpopular decision but it ended up doing something really good which is the chimpangua chimpanzee rehabilitation center is now the largest chimpanzee sanctuary in africa oh wow okay cool you win some you lose some like she's very proud of that space and i would be too with the amount of chimpanzees that are saved like Mm -hmm. it's over three islands she's got the best of the best veterinarians on, like, on staff, like, that that refuge or that rehabilitation center is nowhere near ignored. Mm-hmm. And it, it does some real good. So, whatever, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> However you get it done, right? 1994, she tackled the problem of deforestation with the, with the Lake Tanganyika Catchment Reforestation and Education Program. Its nickname is Takare. She basically sat in a room and listened to people in the neighboring communities of the Gombe Forest, and she worked with these communities and community captains to facilitate the fight against deforestation, as well as the restoration of the forest around them. Mm-hmm. So these these like community captains are going around and like facilitating like planting trees and being better and not cutting crap down, and they're actually using like technology to like videotape these illegal deforestation acts and really holding people accountable for their actions which is huge and it's created such it's created the ability to re-green the area like if you look at the maps it's crazy how much it has grown so far Mm -hmm. so like she's not only working with children she's not only working with big companies she's also working with the communities as a whole she's hitting every single box I think you said earlier how she spread herself thin. She's definitely got a lot on her plate, a lot of moving bouncing. parts. She's still bouncing, by the mm-hmm. way. She is alive and kicking, and she is working her butt off. 
to the point where she like she's ticking also the research lab box. So she also visited labs that used chimpanzees to see the conditions they were put in, stood up in front of these workers and technicians, and just educated them about these animals. No name calling, nothing like that. Just these are mm-hmm. what chimpanzees need to live in order for a happy life. These are pictures of my chimps in Gombe. Now look at the standards of cages and food that you have for your own animals, and please rethink the usage of them in your studies. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't remember what year it was. I was, I think it was like early 2000s. She was a guest of honor at a dinner in D.C., and the director of the NIH was invited. And he was like, cool, I'll go, whatever. And when he got there, she was like, why are you guys still using chimps in your labs? Numbers started going down because of her efforts. Chimpanzees were actually found not to have the same responses to vaccines and diseases that humans have. Mm -hmm. So the data wasn't really that accurate. And in 2015, her petition to consider chimpanzees an endangered species was finally recognized by the Fish and Wildlife Service. Oh, nice. Wow. Yeah. Like, I just, yes, I bow down to her. (laughs) (laughs) How do you, it's so crazy. The Imagine her with the head. Maybe over appetizers, you know, before everything kicks off and just sipping her drink because, you know, the waiters are going around with these platters and she's just like, so when are you going to stop using chimpanzees in test studies? That's exactly. <laughs> really? The studies show that they're actually inefficient in terms of, and then just like a wave of information. <laughs> Look at him in the eye. Oh, I like your tie, by the way. So back to the chimpanzees. <laughs> she is Perfect. And she did all of, she's doing, she's still doing all of these still things, still checking in on all of her little projects mm-hmm. and all of the things that she's created, these seeds, how they've grown yeah. into literal and figurative trees. Oh my goodness, that's great. She ended up like, they're to, the, to the point where like the space in Gombe, it was like this own isolated space, like chimps couldn't get in or out. And she started asking for ways for, like, these little, like, slivers of, like, pathways of, like, greenery for these chimps to move from one space to another. What? And keep from, like, yeah. She's like, okay, well, there's a forest here and a forest here. How are we really going to connect these? I want them to not be inbred. I want them to have these spaces. I want them to have a natural flow of generations. And yeah. they can't do that when they're stuck in this space. Like, she has this mind that just encompasses the bigger picture Mm -hmm. and she commands respect when she walks into a room and it's great because you don't want to disappoint her she's like this really sweet british grandma who comes into (laughs) your room with this stuffed chimpanzee and talks to you through the chimpanzee when really she's actually standing in front of an auditorium full of people with this chimpanzee in her hand like introducing this stuffed animal and like just talking about the forest and creating these memories and these these intellectual conversations, facilitating these conversations, and it's it's such a drive for her. People have told her that she can retire, and she's like, I'm not retiring until I die. Uh, yeah, there is work to be done. So she's received countless of awards. She's been the subject of 40 movies. She's written 26 books, half of them children's books. There's a Jane Goodall exhibit at the National Geographic Museum. She's traveling 300 days out of the year. And at this point, how old is she now? She's 86. 
Okay. I think like two or three years ago, she stood up in front of a giant music festival and talked to a bunch of 20-year-olds about chimpanzees, <laughs> and they loved her. Nice. <laughs> oh, that is great. Like 80 years of determination have influenced millions of people to really think about their place in the world and mm -hmm. how they can help conserve its beauty, and it's all thanks to Jane Goodall. Man, that definitely is a feel-good segment, and I just feel like I just did not live up to your expectations this episode. It's all good. I we I just camped it out of the United States today. And a feel-good out of the United States. It's amazing. All right, well, challenge accepted. I want a feel-good <laughs> segment, too, next time. Next time. So Let's do it. <laughs> it's either going to be a super feel-good or super murdery. We'll see. I don't know. We... <laughs> as always if you guys made it this far you're really awesome and we super appreciate it and milana if people want to find out more about the aboriginal artist emily that we covered today or about your primatologist jane goodall where can they go to find out more we have a website it's myfavoritefeminist.com we have an instagram and a facebook both under my favorite feminist the twitter is at Milena Megan. That's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. -E -E we do have a Patreon. So if you want to hear more, if you love us. Any contribution is definitely appreciated. We definitely, definitely enjoy doing this for, for you guys. Sure. And definitely enjoy doing it without having stupid ads about mattresses and, you know, crap like that. We like being able to do this without having spammy ads oh, like that yeah. interjected. Finally, you can... You can listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and it takes two seconds to rate, subscribe. You can let us know in the reviews section what kind of stuffed animal would you travel the world with. All right, straight up, I am almost 30, and I have a security blanket, and that's what travels with me. You wouldn't, you wouldn't choose a, an animal? No? Baby blanket. <laughs> that's yep. fair, yeah. And mine, in particular, in question, is a uh, is a tiger. She's got a name. I'm not going to tell you. Keeping it a secret. <laughs> She's been to it. Every, every single uh, continent and country that I've ever been to. She almost missed out on one. Milan and I were on our way <laughs> about to start a trip down to Colombia to see Milan's family. And not a few blocks away from our house. She asked, she's like, Megan, are you bringing your baby blanket? And I was like, uh, duh, yeah. The wheel screech of you turning the car around. Because <laughs> you were like, oh, I've left mine behind. <laughs> it was great. And then when we finally got to your family's house, b before we were due to fly out, they were like, why are you late? We expected you sooner. And you were just like, my passport. I forgot my passport. I had to go back for my passport. <laughs> And I just, as a best friend, stood there in solidarity and just solemnly nodded like, <laughs> you're right. She definitely didn't go back for her stuffed animal. It was her passport. <laughs> We're adults. Please send us down to Columbia by ourselves. <laughs> We're we in our mid-20s. We can handle it. We're big girls. Look, I don't, I'm not even, I'm not even going to like hide it. If Jane Goodall says it's okay... And she's 86. Bitch, she's coming with me everywhere. Everywhere. And on that note, we'll see you guys next time. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>
gonna stop my audio. Give me a sec. Why is it an oh my god?